Welcome to Leveling the Playing Field, a podcast featuring women who work in sports. I'm Bobby Sue Doyle Hazard, and today I am really happy to be speaking with a woman who has made quite a mark on the sports industry. Denise White is the CEO and founder of EAG Sport Management. EAG Sports Management has been servicing the PR, marketing, personal, and business needs of high-profile professional athletes for almost two decades. Denise is very well known for her ability to quietly handle players in crisis. And so I'm really happy to be talking to you today. Oh, thanks, Bobby Sue, for having me. I, I am excited to be here. I almost don't even know where to start with you because there are so many fun things <laughs> and like tidbits in your your background. So I'm going to start with the one that makes me sound the cheesiest. Okay. And, and, and that is you received an award, which is the same title of a movie, which got all of my guy friends calling me Sandy because apparently they think I look like Sandra Bullock. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you were Miss Congeniality in a beauty pageant. Oh, Miss, yes. Is that when you were yes. Miss Oregon? Yeah, I was Miss Oregon USA, which you, we always like to make the distinction because some people think when you say one, you, there's a difference between Miss America and Miss USA. Miss America has a talent. Miss USA is not necessarily, it doesn't, it's not talent based. It's, it's based off of looks, your interview style, your, your, we always say you can have beauty and brains in Miss USA. You don't always have to know how to sing or dance. Um, but I was in the Miss USA program and I won Miss Oregon USA in 1994 and competed at Miss USA in 1994 and therefore won the nice award, the Miss Congeniality Award. <laughs> <laughs> I was called the kiss of death because whenever it's kind of a, an unknown thing in the pageant world is when you get the nice award, you very rarely ever win the crown which is funny because I competed at Miss Oregon USA four years in a row. And the first three years I won Miss Congeniality of all things, like second runner up, first runner up, <laughs> but never won the crown. And then when I finally won Miss Oregon USA, I ironically didn't win Miss Congeniality. So <laughs> Funny how that happens. I don't know what that means. That you can't be nice and win. I don't know. <laughs> is that is that award ceremony before they name or crown? The yeah, they winner? usually give out Miss Congeniality before they crown the uh, the winner. So, oh gosh, that yeah. poor person who already knows. <laughs> right, you're like, oh, I won the. But I will say this: Chelsea Smith, who was Miss USA, who went on to win Miss Universe in 1995, she won Miss Congeniality the the year after I did at Miss USA, and so she kind of broke the you know broke that whole myth of you can't be Miss Congeniality and win. So it just made it look like, well, I was just a loser anyway. <laughs> That's amazing. And so you did that while you were at the University of Portland? Yeah, well, at Portland State. So I was Portland finishing State, up. Sorry. Yeah, I was just had finished up actually at Portland State. So um, I'd already been in working um, as, a, as a sports, as a sports, as as a traffic reporter, I started in, in Portland and then worked my way up to a radio station and then did news, traffic and weather and sports and then was doing some some television work up there as well. So I was well into my um, reporting my reporting career when I was when I competed in '94, which is you know uh, also a great place to go with that. Is you were doing the traffic reporting before you went to school or while you were yeah, in school? Yeah. So I well, I was while I was going to school, I was going to actually I was attending San Diego State University, um, and I had done my internship at an NBC affiliate in San Diego. 
And while I was doing my internship, I had an opportunity to intern over at Metro Traffic Control, which was a nationally syndicated traffic service at the time in San Diego. Well, they were just a new comp, a fairly new company. And for those of people that don't know what that is, is Metro Traffic Control back in the day, Metro Traffic Control and Airwatch Traffic Control were nationally syndicated companies that would offer their services, their traffic reports to television stations and radio stations. So radio stations and television stations would not need to hire their own traffic reporters. So they would just basically lease out this company and the company had reporters and we would fly around in Cessnas and park our cars over interstates and, and do the traffic reports for various radio stations, television stations. Nowadays, it's moved a little bit more to most TV stations have their own traffic reporters. But mm-hmm. uh, I was working for Metro Traffic in San Diego. They were opening up a division of, of Metro Traffic in Portland, Oregon. And I, my first big job I landed, um, it wasn't an internship, was to go up to Portland and be a traffic reporter up in Portland while I was finishing school. And so that's what I did. I, and I went up knowing nothing about Portland. It's funny because Oregon and California are very different. Everything in California has a Hispanic-based name. So, you know, mm-hmm. La Jolla, you know, Chula Vista all have like Hispanic names where when you go to Portland, they all have Indian names. So I was, oh, yeah. when I first got there, I was trying to pronounce the roadways in Spanish versus in Indian. And so I, <laughs> I got schooled really quickly on roadways in Portland. But that's how I first started. Wow, that's interesting. And would you do that like really early in the morning and oh, then yeah. go to classes? So, yeah. So I would start out and get up like around 3.34, um, go. And whether I was flying in a Cessna or I was working on the ground in the studio, depended. But I would usually have to get there right around 5. Um, I would work until about 9 a.m. And then I'd go to my classes. And then from there, I'd come back around 3 o'clock and then for the afternoon drive. And that's how it worked for the first two years. That's interesting. You went to school for communications, correct? Yeah, broadcast journalism at San Diego State, but they did not have that at Portland State. So then I went for communications at Portland State. Right. Did you think at that time that you would be working in sports later on? Never in a million years. I thought I would continue my career in broadcasting because that was really what I wanted to do. I, I loved it. I loved, you know, reporting. I loved being a part of the story and, and helping getting the story across to viewers or listeners. Uh, so I really enjoyed that aspect of it and kind of the research part of, of reporting. I loved that aspect of it, too, and finding out the who's, the why's and the when's. And so I never in a million years thought I'd be working in sports or even doing what I'm doing now. It was just such a fluke on how I even ended up doing this. But I, but I did. And I'm glad I did. Did you were you able to play sports or participate in sports while you were growing up? Oh, yeah. So I played softball. I, I, I ran track. I did. Um, powder puff football in high school. Um, I was a cheerleader and a stunt cheerleader in high school and in college. So, and people always go stunt cheerleader. That's not a sport. I go, Oh yes, it is. Um, (laughs) yeah, it's, it's extremely, it's extreme. You know, kids get hurt all the time doing it. As a matter of fact, I actually, um, had a fractured ankle and a couple of bumps and bruises on my kidneys a couple of times. So it's definitely a sport, but yeah, I participate in sports. I cheered for sports. I was a cheerleader in both high school and college as well. Um, what did you run in track? Pardon? Well, no, I, I, I take that back. It wasn't track. I was, I, it was a cross-country runner. So it was more, Oh, you were? 
endurance versus speed. I was too. <laughs> I'm the I'm the slow as you go girl versus the quick fast. <laughs> See what time she can do it in, you know. I, I you know, I say that cross country saved my life. Yeah. Um, and uh and track and indoor track my coach basically like I, I don't think if I um if I hadn't gotten involved in that team that I would be where I am. Uh, yeah. because I was very much on the edge of going down a not great path. Oh, I think. So, you know, that, yeah. that was softball was really that I love cross country, but softball was really that for me because softball te- taught me how to work as a team, you know, mm-hmm. like team people always want, you know, wonder like why, why put my kid in sports? Why have my child involved? It's, it, it's just a huge opportunity for your child to learn how to work with people for the one goal, you know, it's not an individual sport. It's a sport where you involve your team members and you have to learn how to work with a team and learn how to communicate with people. And really that kind of segues into your adult life, right? You know, you go and you work for a company, you're part of a team and you have to work as a team for the ultimate goal. So I really feel like sports in general is great for children these days, but I thought felt team sports was really good because it taught me how to work as a team rather than just work for myself. Yeah, great. I want to hit a home run. I want to, you know, get everybody out at first base. I played first base and I played third. But at the end of the day, it was really about working as a as a cohesive team so we could, you know, get the win. So um, for me, softball was really it. That's, that was my first big sport that I played was softball, too. Oh, interesting. I like that. Um, I You know, I agree. I don't have kids, obviously, but I I think that so much can be learned. Even in the individual um, sports, I think that you, um, depending on how how it's run, right? Like if you have the right coach, we were a really, really close cross-country team. So it didn't matter where on the team you were, you know, um, there was a lot that we all kind of worked together to do. And you ha- we had a bunch of us who were kind of top runners. So we had to, you know, Kind of like come up with race plans, kind of like oh. the the um, NASCAR drivers have to now. You know, um, it's this bizarre world running is. But um, yeah, I um, I when I was reading about you, one of the fun little tidbits was that is it Samuel L. Jackson who yes. found yes. you. Yeah. And how, like, how does that happen? First of all, second so, of all, wait, yeah. second of all, how is he not your voicemail outgoing right. message? <laughs> yeah, he should be, huh? <laughs> so Sam and I are great friends. I will tell you, I met Sam. I was so in between all of the jobs I've had, I feel like I've been a Forrest Gump of my time because I've had so many different jobs. Um, but in between my broadcasting job and the job I'm doing now, um, I was working as a production assistant in Hollywood for a, on a television show called Sparks. And that television show worked um, was was being filmed on a on what's called Gower Studios in Hollywood. And on the same studio lot, there was a film being filmed at the time uh, at this particular time. And it was called Negotiator, which starred Samuel L. Jackson. Now, the, what I was doing, I was working for the celebrities of the television show um, called Sparks. So my clients were 
Robin Givens. Um, I worked with uh, Miguel Nunez, who was on the show, Kim Whitley, who was on the show, and Reef Kitchen, who was on the show. But Robin was my main celebrity that I worked with. So I was there on set every day doing everything from managing her, you know, daily life to, you know, just kind of like, you know, doing a little bit of what what I do now, you know, troubleshooting and helping make sure that everything goes smoothly for her career. So um, and of course, I'm running back and forth on the lot all day long. And and when Sam was there, you, you could just imagine everybody flocked to his trailer. Everybody wanted to say hi to him. Everybody wanted a picture. For me, it was not a big deal because I was there doing a job. And un- unlike a lot of the other people, I just didn't care. I, it, was, it was, oh, Samuel Jackson, great. I've got a job to do. He noticed that, ironically. And so one day he came up to me and he goes, you're the only one that hasn't come over and said hello to me. You know, and he introduced himself. And I was like, hi, Sam, I'm Denise. You know, I work for Robin, Kim, and blah, 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 blah. And he's like, I really like you. you he goes, you're a go-getter. You're like, you're, you're in it to win it. And I'm like, yeah, I am. I'm, I've got a job to do. So long story short, he ended up hiring me um, to kind of do some of the stuff that I was doing for Robin and Kim and and Miguel for him as well. And while I was working for him, um, he just kind of took me under his wing and he was like, let me just tell you something. He's like, you are too smart for this. You know, he's like, you've got a degree. You you are a broadcast journalist. He's like, why are you running after these these celebrities? He's like, why don't you open up your own business? He's like, you love sports, right? And I'm like, yeah, of course I love sports. He's like, why don't you do something in sports? Like, find your niche, find something that you really care about. He goes, and do it. You can do it. You don't need to be doing this for the rest of your life. He goes, you're way too smart, which was funny because I thought I'm too smart to be doing this, but I thought it was a good job at the time. Right. Um, but he's like, no, you're too smart for this. He goes, you can open up your own company. You can do this on your own. And so he was kind of the one that nudged me into the general direction of like, hey, I guess I could do this on my own. What? Why can't I open up a company? Like, who says I can't, you know? So he was the one that kind of pushed me into doing it. And I did. And, you know, I always pay homage to him. I, I always say he was like a father figure to me, although he would hate that I would say that. He doesn't, <laughs> want, to, he doesn't want me to look, you know, I don't want to be your father figure. I'm just saying, I'm, you know, I helped you, you know. Um, but yeah. Can the, I just the, be your friend? <laughs> right. He's like, he puts an age category on you, Denise. I don't want, I don't want that age category. But um, yeah, he's funny. He's quite funny. But um, uh, he's been a great friend and a huge support um, the last 20 years and always um, a cheerleader, you know, for sure on on what I've been doing the past 20 years. And it's nice. I don't get to see him as much as I used to anymore, but he's always working and always seems to be working abroad on a film. But um, just uh, still a great support system when it comes to um, just being a good friend and someone that always believes in your abilities, you know. That's great. And you know, because of your work with him and with Robin, that's how you got your first player, right? Yes. yes. So we were, again, working on the set of the television show called Sparks. And one of my clients, Kim Whitley, um, we had met a gentleman at a dinner a few weeks before this actually happened named Derek Thomas, God rest his soul. And Derek became friends with Kim and I. And Kim had invited Derek to what's called our rap party, each television show. Once they wrap for the season, they have, quote, a wrap party. And so they have, mm-hmm. like, food and drinks and music, and it's a fun little time. And so Kim had invited Derek Thomas to our wrap party. And when she invited Derek, Derek asked if he could bring a few of his teammates along. And Kim said, sure. And so he did. So when he arrived, he arrived with about seven of his teammates. <laughs> and one of the teammates was their newly acquired rookie that they just drafted, Tony Gonzalez. 
And Tony was, um, you know, barely wet behind the ears. And he had um, taken a liking to Robin Givens. And Robin had taken a liking to Tony. And they both had to kind of go through me to get to one another because Robin really didn't want to give out all of her information. So Tony had to come through me to, to get to Robin and we sparked up a friendship. And he asked me eventually, he's like, why can't you do for me what you're doing for, for the celebrities? And I said, well, don't you have an agent? Don't you have someone that's handling all of this for you? And he's like, at the time he had Lee Steinberg. And, and at that time, Lee Steinberg was the biggest NFL agent in the country. I mean, he was, he was the, the, you know, the creme of the creme. He was the big man, big on camp, big man on campus. And so everybody who was anybody was repped by Lee Steinberg. But the problem with that was if you were a new kid on the block like Tony was, you weren't necessarily getting all the attention that you needed. Uh, And Tony felt like he needed more attention. He needed someone really kind of pounding the pavement for him on a day-to-day basis and not, you know, the big quarterbacks or the big wide receivers or all the other people that Lee had. And nothing to take away with Lee from Lee. He was a great agent, but he also had a house full of a hundred and so clients and those guys just, you just can't meet everybody's needs when you house a hundred or more clients. So right. uh, Tony asked if uh, he could hire me. I said, yes. And so Tony was realistically my first big NFL client um, who I proceeded to have for the next 14 years. And Tony kind of helped, helped us, you know, start, kickstart the NFL process of me going from celebrity to athlete. And when I started working with Tony and started meeting his teammates and other NFL players, I started to notice that there was a lack of attention once the athlete signed his contract and nothing against agents because agents are great at what they do, but that's what they do. They go in and they negotiate their contracts. But when it came to servicing the client for their PR needs, their image, their marketing, their day-to-day, their foundations, crisis management, that was all farmed out. You know, they hired publicists, they hired marketing people, they hired foundation people, they hired crisis management people. It was all farmed out. And if the, if the agents did have it in-house, they had one person doing it. And that one person, again, can't, can't work with every single athlete that that agent, you know, represents on a day-to-day basis. So there are guys that are falling through the cracks. So with that, with that, I found that there was absolutely a need for someone to do what I did. And nobody was necessarily filling it. There were people that were marketing agents. There were people that were PR professionals. There were people that were crisis management professionals. There were people that were foundation professionals, but there was not one, a one-stop shop where athletes could get all of their, all their needs serviced in one place without having to talk to five people a day. So that's kind of where the light switch went off when I started working with Tony was why can't there be a one-stop shop for athletes, not just NFL players, but any athlete where you can get all of your needs serviced in one place. You have a marketing division, a PR division on all the divisions that an everything that an athlete needs off the field that he has one place to go to. And why can't that one place be something that I create? So we did, we created it 20 years ago. And so it took a while to kind of figure out the, you know, there's some bumps and bruises when you open up a company and learning (laughs) and, and, you know, being a woman in the industry, it was always hard because in the beginning I was younger then and people thought, oh, she's just trying to find herself a husband. And that wasn't the case whatsoever. I, I wouldn't date what I did. Um, and, it, and then, of course, it was the men. You know, I had a problem with men wanting to know how I was getting the clients that I was getting or, or, or assuming that I was getting them an unconventional way. Let's put it that, that way. And not necessarily thinking, oh, she must be smart and intelligent and she works really hard. 
um, at what she's doing. That's why she's becoming successful. It was always something along the lines of, oh, she must be sleeping with a client. She must be doing something different to get these clients. And, yeah. and so for the first 10 years, it was definitely like trying to conquer the, the naysayers and the people that just couldn't understand why I was becoming successful in a male dominated industry and representing quite honestly, some of the biggest names in the NFL. So, I mean, my first few clients were Jared Allen, Tony Gonzalez, Donnie Edwards, Antonio Gates. I mean, you can't get much bigger than, than those four, you know? So, and I had them most of their careers. So um, the next 10 years was, has been a much easier and I don't say easier as in less work because it's been a lot more work, but easier (laughs) in the sense of people start to then, a, no, you're not going away. B, know that you've been, you're successful and you must be doing a good job. Otherwise, these guys wouldn't stay with you their whole careers. And that you really get stuff done. You know, you're not just somebody that sells a product and then doesn't deliver. So I feel like it's been a lot easier. But that's how the company started. And it, it really is not your the best story around people. <laughs> I didn't go to school to become a sports, sports management, you know, um, entrepreneur and I didn't, I didn't ever dream that I'd be doing crisis management on the level that we do it now. Um, but it evolved that way. And, and I, I really enjoyed and I love what I do. Well, I mean, one of the things that I'm learning as I do these interviews and as I talk to more people in the industry is so few people take a straight line to where they're at and, and or even envision being where they are, right? So Very true. I'm not going to lie. I I may not have even really known about my organization. Um, (laughs) But like, you know, and my, you know, my path to where I ended is, you know, not in a straight line at all. You know, I was at a bio at life sciences company and then I was at a telecom company. So, you know, even though this is what I wanted to be doing, I, never guessed I'd be doing it where I am or after doing it the ways I've been doing it. And, and so many other people it's, you know, um, uh, I had another guest who, you know, she founded her company because she couldn't find running shorts. She liked. Right. Isn't that crazy? So she decided what to make them herself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and how many times does that happen? Um, so you're, I'm going to list a couple of your clients right now. Um, just so that people have an idea of who you're working with these days. Um, you have, let me see. You've got Chris Harris Jr. Who's over at the Broncos. Yes. Jarvis Landry, who's with the Dolphins. Um, you all have a fashion um, woman that you're oh, yes. representing. Yes, Joanna Alba. Yes. Which she is really cool. Across the country. So, yeah. 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 I, I saw that and I loved that. Um, you've got Sasha Gates, who's e- E-Network's WAG star. Yeah, she's um, Antonio Gates' wife. And we have Antonio, we've had Antonio for 12 years. That's interesting. Um, John Bones Jones, who's a UFC fighter. Yes. Um, Joe Johnson with the Jazz and Austin Rivers with the Clippers. So you've, you've gotten into some basketball as well, which yes, is cool. Yes, basketball. We also have Christian Press from the women's Olympic team. Um, yeah. Yeah. And but most of our clients are NFL. Most of them are NFL. We have obviously Deshaun Jackson from the Tampa Bay Bucks and Levante David as well. <laughs> and we still work with Jared Allen, um, who is now retired. But um, Terrell Suggs of the Ravens and Tony Jefferson of the Ravens. We have um, Donald Penn of the Raiders. We have you have um, a bull rider. Yes, we have a bull rider. Tanner. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> 
Well, I'll tell you how that came about because Jared Allen and his country, country self, um, t- yeah, he owns a bowl. And so he, uh, of course, also. Oh, yeah. Into, I, I into read a story about that, didn't I? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so he um, bought into Tanner. He he promotes Tanner. And when he started promoting Tanner, he asked if we would hop on board and help help promote Tanner as well on the PR side. And so we said, sure. And. So now we're in the bull riding business. <laughs> That's amazing. And then I was really happy to see, um, I know you, you mentioned her quickly, um, but Kristen Press um, yes, of the U.S. Girl. Women's National Soccer Team um, and the Chicago Red Stars. Is she still with them? Yes, she is. Yes. She is. That's my girl. She have appeared on the cover of ESPN Magazine's Body Issues last year. She's oh, stunning. did she? Yeah, she's stunning. Stunning girl. A phenomenal athlete. Um, yeah, Olympic athlete. She's She's... And she's just getting started, which is even yeah. better to watch because she's evolving. I mean, she's a great player. She's turning into a phenomenal one. So, yeah, really nice to watch her evolve. Um, when talking about the differences between what you do and what an agent does, I want to dig into that just a tiny bit more. So, you know, your typical um, sports agent um, is the one who negotiates the, the player contracts with the teams. Correct. Correct. And then any other deals. So let's say um, an endorsement deal or, I don't know, TV. Television um, contract. We'll, we'll yeah. negotiate those. So anything. You, you handle those. Yeah, that's negotiable outside of the playing contract. Now, sometimes agents, you know, help their athletes out with those. That If they don't have people like us, they need someone to help them. Obviously, um, <laughs> I know agents don't necessarily like to do that. Um, they're more concentrated on, you know, their players contracts and getting more players, but um, some agents do. So, um, but we kind of take the place of that. So uh, we'll handle everything off the field for the client, negotiating their marketing deals, their appearance, any type of appearance, any type of television contract. Um, I mean, we've even negotiated like home rental contracts, you know, anything that has oh my to gosh. off the field. <laughs> yeah. You know, anything that has that's contractually based. So that sure. ha- comes with a contract and pretty much everything comes with a contract these days. Um, you know, we'll we'll negotiate that. We also are very proactive on the PR side. So we're pitching our clients to put them into positions to help brand them and, and help their image, um, especially NFL players because they wear helmets. So it's really hard to get face recognition with an NFL player because they wear helmets. So that's our job is to help them get that face recognition and help them become more of a brand so they can get more opportunities off of the field. Um, And along with that, the marketing opportunities. So once we've helped them on the PR side, then we push to help them on the marketing side. So create opportunities for them locally and nationally. And then we also have, we help guys with their foundations, um, negotiating, you know, any type of deals when it comes to their foundations, helping them get, you know, 501c3 compliant with the IRS, all the stuff that comes with a nonprofit. And then we have the crisis management uh, division as well, which is a whole nother ball of wax, which, I mean, we go from, we go from A to Z. Let's melt that ball a little. Pardon? (laughs) I said, let's melt that ball a little. Um, We'll take, um, we'll take a guy literally from A to Z on the crisis management side. So they can come from the worst of situations to the less, less of, of the, the worst situations, um, we'll help train them and get them ready for court, prep them for a judge, prep, uh, take them through probational periods, um, through the court system, um, you know, and then I always say some of my best work is stuff you've never heard of because we were able to keep it quiet and, and it never it became a, 
became a, a news news line on a, on a newspaper so or storyline on a newspaper so um it, it's it's a huge uh it, i mean it, it probably takes up most of my time the crisis management portion does um because it's it's very um detailed and a lot it, a lot goes into even just one client with a crisis situation and why do you think more of your time in the past five ten years has been focused on the crisis management are they are players having more crises or is it just because it's more likely that it will get out i think both i think that with the evolution of players and contracts and money i think they become more of a target um, i'm not saying that athletes haven't no athletes have done wrong with themselves but i believe just by some of the um things that i've been witness to and, and been a part of when it comes to extortion and blackmail and, and all of that stuff that athletes have made themselves a target because they're young and naive and they have millions of dollars and, and, you know, it's, it's, they can become easy prey if they're not knowledgeable enough. I think that's one reason. I think another reason is that because, you know, 10 years ago, you didn't have to worry about being videotaped or audio taped or having your picture taken on a, on a phone. And, and these days you can be in the most, um, you know, mo- the most uncompromising position and someone will have a cell phone and have taken a picture of you and it's spread out through TMZ and any type of other tabloid. And, and there you are trying to have to explain yourself away to a situation that maybe you wouldn't have had to explain yourself away to 10 years ago. So it's, you know, the evolution of cell phones and, and, and audio devices and, and video taping devices has definitely created a lot more work for us. Um, as well as just the the opportunity that athletes give people because they just, you know, I was working with a kid who will stay unnamed at this moment, mm-hmm. a very young kid who went into the NFL draft with with already a, a problem on his hands. And he's, I just remember sitting with him for a couple hours, kind of prepping him prior to the rookie, um, to the rookie, uh, there's a, the NFL puts on this, or the NFLPA puts on this rookie thing during uh right after the draft and so he the symposium yeah, well, it's not the symposium they don't do the symposium anymore this is more of like um it's with with the marketing agencies and so then fell pa puts it on so they bring in like the most 30 top marketable rookies he happened to actually be one of them even though he had all of these problems and so um his coach wanted me to sit with him and talk with him a little bit kind of just prep him and get him ready for the league and even though he's been prepped by many people even his team's PR people, his coach just kind of wanted me to kind of, you know, he wanted him to hear it from an outside source to kind of validate what everybody else has been telling him. So I did that. I went to him and we sat for two hours and talked. And the only thing that I could just pay attention to the whole time I was talking to him was this kid is so young. He is so young. He is such a baby. Mentally, he is such a baby in the sense that he is young. He's a kid. So you give these kids this type of opportunity because they're still kids and you give them all this money and with no training, no, no one's really prepping them and, and, and giving them, you know, they, they might tell them for one hour what to watch out for the pitfalls of being a professional athlete, but nobody's really guiding them. You know, let's hope they get with an agent that helps them out. But nine times out of 10, the agent is, he's not really, he doesn't have the time every day to sit and talk to the kid and let them know, you know, what to be careful of. So you give these kids all this money, you tell them to go out in the world and find a financial planner, find this person, find that person. A lot of these kids come from not so great home life situations in the first place. 
And then you tell them not to screw up. You know, right. don't get caught with a girl. Don't get caught here. Don't get caught there drinking. Don't drink and drive. You tell them all these things not to do. But eventually someone's going to screw up because they just haven't really either A, gotten all the information they need to know how to be careful, or B, they're just too young and, and dumb. And I don't mean that in a, in a mean way, but, that, you know, think about what you did with your 20-year-old self versus what you do now with your 40-year-old self. I'll tell you what, I wish my 40-year-old self could go back and tell my 20-year-old self, don't do that. <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> I mean, uh, one of the things I... One of the things I am most grateful for is that we did not have camera phones when I was in college because I mean, yeah, you, and it's funny because I see these guys every day, right? And you still forget how young they are until, you know, either something happens or until they do something really silly that just shows, you know, and, and by silly, I mean like, they start dancing because they're so excited and you're like, Oh yeah, you're 22, 23. Like this is still a big dream to you too. And and, and I, and I hate to use dumb as as an adjective to describe them, but it's really about not being knowledgeable enough to be able to, or, or um, mature enough to be able to handle. Yeah. The pitfalls of what's going to happen by being a multimillionaire at the young age of 20 or 21 or 22. So it's, it's one of those situations where you're, you're asking these kids to go out there and be an adult right now. I know you've been a kid, but I want you to be an adult right now. And, you know, some of these kids just don't have the maturity <laughs> level yet to do that. I could, you know, it's so funny. I talk to some of my guys now who I've had 10, 11, 12 years, and they will say to me, gosh, Denise, remember when I did that when I was a rookie? And I'll be like, yeah, I do remember when you did that. I was cleaning it up. <laughs> but the maturity level they have. Yeah, but the I maturity didn't sleep for three weeks. <laughs> is so much different than what they had, you know, five, ten years ago. Because they've evolved, just like everybody evolves. But, you know, the, the general public's not going to give a professional athlete that opportunity. They expect more from them because of what they're doing for a living. So, we're not going to give you the opportunity to go out there and mature on your own because, you know, you're making millions of dollars. We're not going to let you screw up. We're not going to we're not going to give you, a you know, a, a free pass. So it's, you know, but there's levels of screw ups, too. There's levels of, of crises. And so is it a drunk driving, a PED or is it something more severe? So or are the allegations more right. severe? Because I will tell you, a lot of my time is cleaning up allegations from from people that not are not necessarily true. So it's, you know, these guys have gotten themselves into situations that can become very detrimental for their career, not just for their playing check, but for their career with people that would love to, you know, uh, go out and spread a lie to be able to become more wealthy for it. So it's, you know, you're, you're fighting, you're fighting a, a double-edged sword sometimes when it comes to crisis management. In, in the NFL or in any sport because you, you're, you're fighting an uphill battle sometimes when it comes to who you have to deal with. Yeah, for sure. Um, do you handle or do you um, uh, source out, no, I guess, the financial, the financial aspects, aspects of uh, no, their I will, lives? I will say this. We have four to five financial planners that we know that I feel comfortable with saying, go take meetings with these guys and pick one. You know, these guys won't steal your money. They are, they've been accredited and licensed and 
insured and they've been with our guy, you know, some of our guys have had them 10, 11, 12, 20 years that I know are, are qualified financial planners. I don't, I don't funnel our guys to any one financial planner because that wouldn't be good for me. And plus I, if something was to ever happen, I wouldn't want to be a part of that. Although it never has, but I've also sure. seen a lot of crooks in the industry when it came to guys being with a so-called financial planner and they don't know where their money is or their money's now gone. Or So we've had a few instances where athletes have come to us and, and didn't have a financial planner and we knew of some good ones out in the industry and we just give them a list and said, you know, go take some meetings and see who you like. And then they pick on, they get to pick them on their own. But we don't, we try not to get involved in their financial situations unless there's an instance where we feel like something's going down that's not good. I I did have a client once, well, more than once, but he'll remain he'll remain nameless. That you could just <laughs> tell something was going on financially. Something was wrong. His credit cards weren't working. He wasn't getting things paid on time. But he had a so-called financial planner. And at the end of the day, and it was too late for us to kind of help him out in the sense of like raising the red flag, but. Um, at the end of the day, we found out his financial planner was stealing from him. His uncle was stealing from him and his agent at the time was stealing from him. Um, and it's unfortunate that he had to find that out by the time he lost all of his money. So um, we had just started working with him. So we weren't along for all of that. Um, otherwise, I probably would have figured it out quite quickly and would have been able to do something about it. But there are those situations where you see something happening and you just can't do anything about it quite yet. but. By the time you want to do something about it, it's, it's too late. So, um, yeah, you know, there's those yeah. pitfalls with professional athletes and getting with the wrong financial people, which, you know, really, oh, that's just that's probably one of the biggest things that gets me the angriest is when somebody's out there stealing from stealing from a client. That, that just kills me. Yeah, I hate those stories. Um, you and I have talked about one particular player who we won't name, um, but you've said that this is a common problem and um, particularly in like rookie or early years in the league being surrounded by the wrong people and, um, and what, what that can do to them, whether it's their outward um, branding or just how they act and the, the yeah, trouble you know, they I'm, get I into. I think because a lot of the guy, a lot of the guys that we represent, come from situations that their friends were more of their family than their family was, whether it was they had single parent homes or no parent homes, or they came from inner cities or not so great, you know, areas of town. And so, you know, they grew up in a rough place. And so, you know, they always want to stay true, stay true to who they are. And I always try to tell our guys, staying true to who you are, isn't letting your guys take you down, you know, the, the, the garbage hole. I mean, you don't have, if, if you don't feel like, someone is out for your best interest and not theirs, you, that's not somebody you really need to hang around with and convincing guys of that without them thinking that they're leaving their boys behind um, is, is, is hard sometimes because those guys were there for them before they were in the league and before that they had anything. So they always feel like they need to get back. The problem with that is, is that a lot of times the posses or the guys from, you know, their, their meager beginnings or where they came from, are looking out for themselves and not through the athlete. So they're willing to let the athlete do things that would get him into trouble or put him in positions that won't be a great positive, you know, image for him or his team or the league. You know, it's 
more like, oh, we can go hang out in the club and do this and do that. No big deal. But the but the but the friend isn't helping the situation by thinking, okay, maybe this isn't a good place for you to be at two o'clock in the morning before a game. Maybe this isn't a good place for you to be, you know, so on and so right. forth. So it's it's really trying to convince the athlete that, you know, he needs to surround himself with positive people that will pay attention to, you know, his image, um, you know, what the future holds for him, his playing, you know, and during the season, what he needs to be doing for that to make sure that he's, you know, uh, making sure that he's doing well for the team and, and for himself. So it's, it's trying to, it's, 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 it's tough because sometimes those people happen to be much closer than just friends. They happen to be family members and family members can be just as hard to deal with. Um, mm-hmm. And especially if it's a mom or a dad that you're dealing with and you know that they're just not doing the right things for their child and, and you want to say something, but you have to be really careful because, you know, that's their child or it's their parent. So um, we've, we've come up against a lot right. of those, unfortunately, but, you know, you work through them and, and usually it works out in the end, but it takes a while to convince the athlete, you know, what's right and what's wrong. Sure. One of um, my favorite stories reading, um, you were featured in Men's Journal in a very <laughs> large spread um, and the story, it, I mean, it's a, it, it's Thank a, you. Thank a you well much. done article. Um, and, but, you know, one of my favorite stories in it um, oh, yeah. is about Brandon Marshall. And, um, and you know, I think some of us will remember a few years back, he kind of kept getting in the newspaper right. for not the right reasons. And, um, and then it, it was um, discovered. Um, luckily, he got, um, got help pretty you know, close to when this all started, but that he um, yes. has a mental illness and yeah, and he well, wanted to come out I, about that. I was, I was telling him not to. Um, we started working with Brandon and when he was with the Denver Broncos and just a little bit about my background, for those who don't know, I grew up with a mental ill mother who was schizophrenic and bipolar and manic depressive. So I know the signs when there's trouble in the water when it I lived it. I breathed it. I was raised around it. So um, with Brandon, it was it was interesting because things started happening with him, and he just it didn't it didn't seem like it right off the bat when I started working with him. But I knew something was wrong because then we kind of started feeling like we were walking on eggshells every time we would talk to Brandon. Were we getting were we getting the happy Brandon? Were we getting the upset Brandon? Were we getting you know? And and the media they just love to feel the fire with he has anger management problems, and I'm like. Mm-hmm. I think there's something deeper here, but he went on to have problems with the Denver Broncos. They traded him went over to Miami. He had some huge problems while he was at Miami. Then he went to Chicago, but, but, but right after his problems at Miami, there was a bit of an intervention and he went and sought help at McLaren hospital in Boston and they diagnosed him. It's, it's amazing. Which is a hospital. great it's hospital, quiet. by the way. Patient. You know, a lot of guys these days that I talk to that have, yep are afraid that it's going to be out and their teams are going to find out and so on and so forth. But with Brandon, we did it very quiet. He did it very quietly and, and nobody knew what was going, nobody knew that it was going on except his inner circle. And, and he documented it. He had somebody document his whole time there and his diagnosis and everything. And so when he got signed with Chicago and he wanted to talk about it, I was so concerned because I grew up a child 
of a mentally ill mother and was told never to speak about it because I would be judged for my mother. I would be judged that my mother, as they would say, I think crazy, and I must be crazy too. So in my head, the minute he said he wanted to speak out about it, I was like, no, don't, don't. The crisis management person came, kind of took over and was like, don't do it. You know, you'll regret it. People will, people will call you names. People will chastise you. People will call you crazy. I just, I was being more protective, like a mama bear. Like I didn't want to have him go through that pain. Mm-hmm. It was really kind of a moment where he taught me something. He's yeah. like, Denise, how are we going to help other people if I don't start speaking out on it? Here I have this huge platform that, the, that I can get the world to listen to me. Um, but I'm not going to talk about my illness because why? Because maybe somebody might call me a name or say something about me. You know, like what, what's the point of being able to have this form if I can't use it for my, you know, for something like this or something that I actually am dealing with and going through. And even after we had the long talk, I was still so concerned. I was, I told him, I said, he's going to get up on this podium and he was going to talk about his mental illness. And I said, just call me when you're done. Call me right when you're done. Because I was so concerned for him. It was like literally like a mom affair <laughs> affecting her cub. And but he got up there and he talked about it. And, and and since that day, he has done so much for the mental health community on his own. He's raised an amazing amount of money. He's established places in schools and and, and in areas that might not ever see mental health health awareness and health mental health help. Um, and he's brought so much visibility to it that that you know it's still taboo. People don't want to talk about it. People don't want to. And so many people are affected by mental illness. I mean, the percentage is ridiculous in sports, outside of sports. You know, every time I talk to a friend or somebody, they have a mom or an uncle or an aunt or a cousin that's dealing with depression or bipolar or schizophrenic or borderline personality, whatever it may be, people are affected all around you. You just don't know about it because people still feel so taboo to talk about. And Brandon is opening up that conversation. And so what's ironic now is we kind of tag team one another when there's an athlete in crisis, when it comes to mental illness, because either if they don't talk to me, they'll talk to Brandon. If they don't talk to Brandon, they'll talk to me. Um, I helped quite a few guys, you know, uh, to date with issues behind closed doors and, and help them get the help that they need so they can go out there and be productive on the field. So the problem with it today and the league, they offer so many opportunities for guys to get help, but the guys are scared to let anybody know there's a problem because they're afraid it's going to, affect their playing or it's going to affect their contract or their ability to play and stay with the team. So they're very apprehensive on even letting the teams know, and this isn't just football, this is all sports, letting the teams know that they have a problem. So someone like me or someone like Brandon that can help them quietly behind the scenes do it and still be effective. I think it's been an amazing opportunity to do something. I wish my mother was alive so she could see it. Um, And I wish I had had the opportunity when, back in the day when I was Miss Oregon to really speak out on it and not feel ashamed uh, for something, for something like that, because that's what I felt. I felt shame my, my whole life growing up. I felt shame because people, that's how they made you feel, you know, Oh, your mother's, your mother's mentally ill. You know, could you be mentally ill? It's, it was just such a taboo to talk about. And, but now I'm, I'm proud to be a part of hopefully what I would like to call a movement. I'm sure Brandon would call it too, a movement of getting the word out and people speaking about it and speaking more freely about it. So people that do have issues feel like it's okay to call and get help, you know, call. I mean, and there's so many places to get help from. Um, but like, again, people don't, 
don't want to talk about it because they still feel it's, it's taboo. So I really feel, really feel like Brandon's opening those doorways and I'm hopefully helping. I like to think I'm helping somehow, whether it's just in the sports world, that's okay by me. But, um, you know, people letting them know that I'm here to help you or help you get the help you need so you can have a, a not just a long-lasting career, but a, but a long-lasting life. Yeah, I mean, I think it's so important. And um, the reason I know about McLean is because um, my mom went, uh, I think one of the times that she was hospitalized, my mom has uh, severe bipolar disorder. And um, I actually, I haven't spoken to her. Yeah, I haven't spoken to her in a couple of years, mostly because as as I know you're aware, there are some manipulative parts to that illness that um made it not healthy for me um so but so i grew up in a household with that um and you're right i mean the shame and i actually didn't have a word for it until maybe this past year um i i thought i felt guilty um and i've learned that it's shame right and not talking about it and um uh there were some fairly public um things that occurred so the school would know and um but up until you know and i and i myself have battled with um with depression and anxiety um since i was a kid and you know even in college when i was having issues i didn't really talk about it with anybody um and then even in the same in law school, I maybe told one person um, and up until a couple of years ago and, you know, friends of mine who are listening uh, will will start shaking, you know, nodding their head because a few years back, maybe three years ago now, um, I just started to be really open about it um, on Facebook, on um, on Twitter a little bit. But I I've just gotten to a point where. I don't want anyone else to feel like they can't talk about it or like there's something wrong with them. And I think it might've been right after Robin Williams um, killed himself, unfortunately Um, that I was just kind of like, you know, it's really, you know, it's not good for me and it's not good for other people that I, that I hide these things. And even people I dated, like I didn't want to tell, you know, I, I think I dated a guy for, I don't know, seven, eight months. And I don't think I ever told them. Um, and, and those types of things I think are just so important. And when you have people in such a, um, high visibility position, um, whether it's, you know, working for a team or, um, as a player or just as CEO of a company, right. Um, to show that, you know, you can be a high performing person and, and have you know an illness just like any other illness um then you know and that you can be really good at what you do and that it doesn't have to be the end of the world and that you can talk about it if you want um but you don't have to hide it but i still feel like there's that stigma that Um, you know unfortunately that people sure um you know i i just remember when I was younger and I'd gotten into an argument with actually quite a good friend of mine and we were in a room of people and she said, you're going to be crazy just like your mother. And I was, 
devastated that she said that because most of my friends, I oh, never yeah. knew what was wrong with my mom. And so for her to use that against me, I just thought I'll never tell another soul again about my mother. And I didn't for years and years and years and years mm-hmm. until quite honestly, until um, Brandon came out. I, it was, it was interesting how someone else's illness can be your freedom in the sense of being able to talk about, you know, what happened to you. And so I thought, gosh, if Brandon can do this, I can certainly start speaking out about my experiences. I mean, he's on a world stage in front of, you know, everybody and their mother speaking about how he, how his mental illness has affected him. And gosh, why can't I start doing that, you know, and not feeling judged or, or, you know, viewed upon as, you know, oh, she's going to be just like her mother. Um, Because, you know, us as children, that's all we didn't want to, we didn't want to be, you know, we, we didn't want we, we hoped and prayed right. that we wouldn't turn out that way. So um, it's, I think it's, you know, it's interesting how times evolve and things evolve, but I wish people would see it as, you know, I always be like, would you treat someone with cancer this way? No, you wouldn't. You, you have cancer marches, you, right. you know, have cancer month, you have this, you have that. But when it comes to mental health, you know, I, it's it's definitely not um, on everybody's radar like cancer is or heart health is. So um, I'm hoping that that changes. And I, I think Brandon's are definitely a good start for that, for sure. And um, I, I, you know, I, I think he's done great work. Um, you're on yes. the board of his. Um, yes, of his I am on the Project board. 375. So, so kind of Brandon to ask me to be on his board and his hit. Projects 375, it, like I said earlier, it, it raises awareness for mental health um, and also brings um, curriculum into schools, um, places where kids can also learn about mental health and, and receive help if they so need it. Um, you know, mental health isn't just adults that have mental health issues. It's children these days, so many more children than, mm-hmm. than um, back in the day. And we're not too sure if that's an environmental reason or, or what, but um, it's definitely more prevalent in younger children um, than it used to be and, and teens. And usually mental health, um, you start seeing issues in, the, you know, early, late, late teens, early 20s for, um, for men and, and then early 20s for women. Um, but sometimes it can even be a lot sooner than that. It can be grade school and, and junior high school. So Brandon's focus was to make sure to bring those, that information into those schools um, so kids can get help. Um, you know, teen suicide is on the rise and that definitely is a mental health issue. Um, so we're making sure to have those, um, you know, those options available to kids seeking that help. Um, cause there's so many that feel like there's no one, nowhere to turn or no one to talk to. And then he's just, you know, creating more awareness and, and he's creating, um, places where people can get mental health help at little to no cost. Um, because of the way that, you know, uh, ment- or medical health is is set up these days and getting that mental health, not all insurances cover that. So um, it's, it's considered an extra, which I find kind of funny. Um, oh, there goes my dog. <laughs> Hold on one second. Yeah. Hey, no. Hi, puppy. Um, so they don't find it, you know, easily accessible. Oh. So Hold on. Sorry. Little peanut. Sorry about that. <laughs> Um, so oh yeah, gosh, so you don't find fine. it easily accessible, <laughs> um, you know, uh, like you can, if you, you know, like 
Planned Parenthood or something like that. So it's um, Brandon's vision is to make it right. easily accessible for anybody that needs it and wants to get help and, and also create more awareness, you know, create, start the conversation. Brandon's been instrumental in going to companies, the leagues from NFL to the NBA and speaking out on it and, and telling the leagues what they can do to make it better for players. Um, you know, companies, what they can do to make it better for their employees. So um, Project 375 is, is an amazing foundation that is really creating more um, conversation and more and more places for people to get help that need it. So I was so honored that he asked me to be on the board. I think that, I mean, everything I've seen online about it is just fantastic. Um, you know, the, the whole healthcare system right now, um, you know, I think mental health is um, right now under ACA is included, um, but it might be limited. And but the bigger problem, even when you do have health insurances, that a lot of the best practitioners do not take insurance. Um, so your your um, therapists, you know, um, don't take insurance. And, you know, that. I think ends up pricing so many people out um, of being able to get effective treatment. And that type of treatment is so similar to dating. I mean, you have to go to, I, I can't even tell you how many I've throughout my life gone to before I found one that I really clicked with. And, um, you know, it, it just takes a lot of time and, and resources that aren't, always readily available. So, you know, kudos to you for participating and, you know, Brandon for doing it. I mean, it's very brave of him to be as outspoken as he is. And um, I'm a a big supporter of it um, myself, even though, you know, just like with him, I know that there are people who may, you know, have thoughts on it. And I've decided to take that risk, you know, just like he has, um, which I think is good. We're going to talk about something more fun now, though. And I'm so excited to talk about this because I need to know details. There is a movie being made about you. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Which which is, first of all, is so cool. Um, Jennifer Aniston is going to be you, um, which is cool uh it's called the fixer and then um, melissa wallach um, of dallas dallas buyers club fame is writing it so like just start at the beginning what has this process well, t- been like because like how does that yeah, happen how so, does somebody buy your so life right it happened it started with the men's journal article coming out and i, I literally of course probably and anybody that's had an article ever written about them <laughs> thought never in a million years thought it would come to this. But um, the, the, the article came out, and I guess I'm interesting. So um, <laughs> my story's not, my story's definitely not um, normal, <laughs> let's put it that way. And so um, I started getting phone calls from Hollywood. Yeah. You know, this would make a great movie. This would, you'd make a great person for, you know, I can't tell you how many production companies called me wanting me to do a reality show. And that's just not realistic for me. Um, 
nor would I, you know, I would ever, never consider it. Um, although they had some great names for the reality shows, but, you know, I'm not, not interested in the reality. But, and it became so much that I finally started having my assistant direct the phone calls to ICM, which was a talent agency that was kind of repping me at the time because it was just a friend over there. And I was like, can you take these phone calls and, and, and vet them and see who's real and who's not? I mean, I work around Hollywood, but... I'm just, I don't know who these people are. So, you know, who's legitimate, who's not. But one of the phone calls I did take myself was a woman by the name of Melissa Wallach. And she started talking to me about why, you know, the story's amazing, your life. I I think this would make a great picture. You know, would you be interested? And so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm like, oh, okay, let me, let me buy it. Let me bite, you know? And I, I listen a little bit more. And as I'm listening to her, I'm Googling her name. I was like, oh, holy heck, she's legitimate. She's, you know, a screenwriter. And she had written Dallas Buyers Club, among many other films. She's a great writer. And so long story short, we had gotten all kinds of offers. We, me, had gotten all kinds of offers um, from from movie houses to do a promotion picture. But what she decided is, is to say no to all of them, which we did, which was really interesting. And she wanted to package it. So she wanted wanted to go a different, a a non-traditional route. Uh, packaging it and then going back to the movie houses and see who was interested. And I guess that's more on a monetary side too. I'm not too sure because again, this is all quite new to me, but so she wanted to package it with a writer, a director, a a, a star, a celebrity star playing me and so on and so forth. So they sent out the article to like 15 top name celebrities from Julia Roberts to Sandra Bullock, you know, uh, 15 of them. And to see if anybody would buy it if they liked mm-hmm. the story. And, and so Sandra Bullock said it was too close to Blindside. Julia Roberts was busy. Gosh darn it. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> I just, just, when I say the names, I kind of crack up and laugh a little bit. But um, four, four actresses came back that were interested. One was Amy Adams. Another was um, Michelle Moynihan. Um, another one was Cameron Diaz. And then the fourth was, was Jennifer Aniston. And Clearly, Jennifer, the bigger out of all four of those, as far as box office draw. And so they were like, would you meet with Jennifer Anderson? And, I, and again, this whole process, I was like, oh, yeah, well, am I going to say no? <laughs> no, sorry, Jen, can't meet with you. So, right. yeah, of course, I'll meet with her. You can't right. It's ridiculous. <laughs> but I'll meet with her. So I, I had the most amazing meeting with her. It lasted three hours. And she asked if she could play me. And, and again, what are you going to say? Sorry, Jen. No. You know, I mean, of course, of course you can play me. This is ridiculous. <laughs> Everything is even happening. So, um, I, which is just makes you so humble at the time because you're like, is, is this really happening? I remember leaving her management's office. She was with Brillstein at the time, which is in Hollywood or, or Beverly Hills, rather. And I remember in the lobby of Brillstein Apartments, I just left the meeting and I looked at my cell phone and I go, God, who can I call that's going to believe this? You know, like, (laughs) and so I didn't call anybody because I still thought this is never going to happen. This is so ridiculous. So I did it. I let my best friend know Uh, and that was it. And, um, and then, so sure enough, she signed on to do it, but she would only sign on to play me if she could also produce part of the movie. So her company, when she was married to Brad Pitt, she had a production company when they got divorced, they she took the production company with her, basically. And her best friend is also the head of the production mm-hmm. company, Chris Khan. And so they produce stuff. Um, anyway, so she wanted to be Fox 2000 is the one that bought my rights. But 
Fox 2000 and Jennifer's production company are the ones that are actually producing the film. So not only is she starring me, she's the exact, one of the executive producers as well, which is great because she's the one that's fueling, uh, getting everything done more in a timely manner, I guess. So we signed on then they, so the, it's funny because they announced everything in January of 2016. It got leaked to the press. I say that very loosely because I know exactly why it got leaked to the press. They, <laughs> they called me one night and they, the, one of the producers said, we just want to let you know that, um, that the press got wind of the project. I'm like, do you remember what I do for a living? <laughs> I work in PR. I work in PR. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's nothing gets, you know, they don't get wind of anything. You leak it. So they get wind of it. So but I knew what they were trying to do. They were trying to put pressure on two of the movie houses that were kind of bidding for the project. So they wanted to put more pressure, I think, on Fox. So they thought they would release it. So they released it. But without really telling me, they they called me the night before. Just said, we just want to let you know the media got wind of the project. (laughs) It's probably just going to be on a couple online like that. And. I wake up the next morning to one of my girlfriends in New York calling me saying, Denise, you're on Good Morning America. And I'm like, what do you mean I'm in bed? What are you talking about? And she's like, no, you and Jennifer Anderson, your pictures are on Good Morning America. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And so it just like, yeah, split oh screen, God, me split and Jen, screen. talking about the movie. I was like, and then of course my phone lit up like a Christmas tree because I hadn't really told anybody. We hadn't even signed the contracts in January. We were still in negotiations with Fox 2000 at the time and another movie house. So we, we hadn't even signed anything yet. So the fact that it was even being out, it was even out in the media was, I was like, this is way premature. What if I decide no? You know, what if I decide I'm not doing this? So it gets leaked <laughs> and, and it's all over the media in January, but we didn't even sign our contracts with um, Fox 2000 until June of that year. So they didn't even start writing the script until like last oh, August. Wow. So and then, and then that's what happened. So for those of you that are listening that have no idea how a movie is made, because I certainly didn't really know much either, except for what I've seen on sets, is it's a very long process. So you get the okay from the movie house and you sign your contracts and they buy your life rights. By the way, if you're, if you're nobody like me, your what life is that, rights are... What does that mean? So um, let's just put it this way. Aaron Brockovich, myself, Jerry Maguire, which was really not Jerry Maguire, but, um, you know, those people, the blind side, they pay you absolutely nothing for your life, right? Absolutely nothing. You make a little bit for the film, but when I say a little (laughs) bit, it will be nothing that changes your lifestyle. If you live, you know, the way you live, you might be able to pay off some bills, but it's not... People think you get rich off of a movie being made about you. You don't. Um, <laughs> but what you do. Oh, do you still do you still have the ability yes, to say yeah, like, you have write the a book to write or a book. have someone else write a book? They have my rights for seven years, but I can still write a book. There can be a, there can be a play about me if I want. Um, I can write as many books as I want where people like me will make making money is once the film comes out. You do speaking engagements. I have, um, when this all got announced, uh, I don't know if you know who J.D. Sure. Weinstein is or not, but he is, yeah, part of Million Dollar Arm yep. was based on him. It's a Disney film. And he called me and introduced himself to me and, and was like, I'm going to be your guide through the movie making business on what you need to do to help yourself, you know, <laughs> get something out of this whole thing. Because, you know, everybody else is making money off of you. You should probably learn how to make some money off of too. And he's like, this is what you want to do. You want to get yourself ready to do speaking engagements. If you want to write a book, if you want to do 
you know, this, this, and this. And so he kind of walked me through it because, you know, the people that make the money are, is, you know, the movie house, which is fine. That's, you know, that's their thing. And the producers and the actresses, but the person that it's about, unless you're Michael Jackson, um, is you don't really make a lot of money. So um, now I'm not looking to give choice in the mouth. I still think it's, you know, the deal's okay, but it's not what I think the general public would think was. So, yeah, so you, you end up sure. you know, making your money where, you know, after the film is released, whether you release a book or you release a film and start keeping engagements and those type of things. But it's, it's a slow process. They're, they're working through the script, then they're work, they work through a set. So the way the script process works is that takes anywhere from 6 to 12 months to write the script. Yeah, and and if they have re- they, they get two yeah. major drafts and then rewrites. So we're in the second process of the second portion of the script. Then they go into pre-production, like a casting and pre-production. Then they they go to production and then post and then you know. So the making of a film can take anywhere from three to five years, which I never I I was aware of, but not aware of until the film. <laughs> right. 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 You like kinda know. I mean, I guess Wonder Woman yeah, took like know. thirty it, it years. I don't know. I mean, uh, we're not. We, the lucky thing about my film is that it's not like Transformers where it's got all of these, you know, like, you know, crazy, you know, animation and all of that stuff, which yeah, well, which thank takes God years no and Michael years Bay. to produce. I mean, this is just like uh, an actual film about a human being and, and how she's created what she's created and so it's it's pretty easy to film. It's not something that you've got to worry about, you know, animation and graphics and all of that stuff and transformers and things blowing up and all of that. So um, the worst thing we're going to have to worry about is guys putting people on a football field and having them play football. It's, it, that's the, that'll be the hardest part of the movie. <laughs> right. Which by this point yes. in time, they've done so many times that yes, I'm absolutely. sure they've got it figured out. Yeah, the process has been super interesting, <laughs> to say the least. And um, uh, and are you are you helping with well, the writing what, of the script? What happens or, is um, you know any is input. That it is I don't get to help write the script, but they interview me. So it is basically. What it is is that they get to interview me and the writer does. She interviews me. And then what we do is we talk about, you know, all the things that I've been through and, um, and she takes excerpts out of my life and fits them into the film. And, and I get what's called creative consultation. So, but you know, at the end of the day, I get to see the script. I can make notes on the script. Um, they want me to like it because they're going to need me to help promote it. Correct? So um, so yeah, so they definitely get, I get the opportunity to go over the script, help with the script, you know, they have to, you know, take it from my life. So they're, you know, constantly for the script and asking me, would this happen here? What would you do here? You know, can you give me names? That type of thing. It's so interesting and has to be so surreal. Yeah, it is very surreal. Very, very, very surreal. Do you have to? Oh, yes. time with yeah, we do. I have to. <laughs> so what will happen? Yeah. So what will happen? It's so difficult. Filming is she'll start following me. <laughs> um, basically, kind of learning my mannerisms, my walk, my talk, how I deal in business. You know, all of this stuff that will kind of help her. So, um, which which will be interesting. I hope I'm not too boring. Um, but yeah, she'll yeah. be interesting to spend time with her and let her you know, a little bit more, and so she can portray me, which 
is an interesting process in itself, I think. Right. Um, what have you your know, guys said? Some of them don't even realize it. Um, I don't bring it up. So unless they saw the news coverage right. over it, um, I don't really talk about it. I just don't want to, I know this sounds really odd. I just don't want it to be about me because my job is to help my guys. So it's really, I'm not, I shouldn't necessarily be the focus. I know at some point I'm going to be when the movie comes out, I get it. But um, so unless my guys bring it up, I don't really say <laughs> anything. I mean, a couple of them have been like, yeah, Denise, it's not a movie. And I'm like, yeah, I do. But, um, I, you know, I don't really, I mean, I think, you know, the one that's most involved is Brandon because what we're, what we've asked them, the studio to do at the end, because part of the movie does have, um, um, uh, it, 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 it follows my mother and her mental illness. And then I help an athlete who has a mental illness in the film. So, um, it does follow right. mental illness and that, and that's a big message in the film. So at the end of the film, we've talked about. Brandon and I coming on and, and talking about mental health awareness and where you can get help and seek help if you need it. And here's a number to call or here's a place to go. So kind of like a little, you know, announcement, PSA announcement at the end of the film. Yeah. Um, which I'm really excited about. But so Brandon's had the most knowledge of the film because he and I really discussed that. Um, but other than that, I, I haven't really, right. I mean, the guys that do know, I think that was cool, but, um, I, I just really don't bring it up that much. I mean, I'm guessing they yeah. might find no, they... out when they see Jen <laughs> hanging around you. <laughs> you know, just like, but I really, honestly, can you just not tell them and like not mention it and just have her be there? And I want video of one of them coming like into your office or meeting you for something and having no idea that this woman is following you around so that you can be right, like, Oh, right. and here's my friend, Jen. Right. Exactly. And see their reaction. Like that would make my day. <laughs> It'd be so funny there. I mean, cause the guys are so funny about, um, about like actors and actresses and, um, because I guess no matter how big you get, right. And the actors and actresses are so get right, funny exactly. about the athletes. So, um, we had a couple of uh, I had a couple of general hospital guys that I know visiting and um, and like some of the guys got really excited because they right, would watch right. general hospital in college. Not hilarious. <laughs> like, what? Yeah. Um, you also do um, a lot of work with um, foster kids and um I would love to hear about what it is that well, you do um, on you that. Know, honestly, we do these things at Christmas time. They're called Shop with the Docs. It was my brain, brain, brainchild. Um, gosh, more than 15 years ago, I was a child that was in and out of foster care and placement centers um, at a very young age. One of the places that I went to was called um, Hillcrest Receiving Home in San Diego. That is no longer the name of it. It is now um, a huge facility. When I was there. It was two double wide trailers on top of a hill that would take children that were taken out of their homes, whether there was neglect or abuse or, or absent parents. Um, I, now it's a facility that holds 238 kids at one time, and it's like a, it's like a mini campus. Oh yeah, it's gosh. amazing. Um, but when I was looking for something to do for one of my guys uh, back then, it was Johnny Edwards at the time, and he played with the Chargers and the Chiefs. But at that time, he played with the Chargers. 
And um, I said, gosh, you know, maybe we should do something for like foster kids because, you know, they get taken out of their homes and it's a scary time for them. And I said, you know, I was, I was at this place called Hillcrest Receiving Home. I wonder if it still exists. And he's like, shut up, Denise. And I go, okay, why? And he's like, no, I was in Hillcrest when I was a kid. Unfortunately, he had um, been placed in Hillcrest because of his family. And um, so I was like, oh, my gosh, that's the place. Let's do it. Let's do Hillcrest, which, again, wasn't called Hillcrest once we figured it out. But um, so that kind of spawned the idea of why can't we do these in other cities around the country? Why can't we take these kids at Christmas time and give them a, a, a great opportunity to have a great time? They might not necessarily get a Christmas. They certainly aren't spending Christmas with their families, most of them. And, um, and just kind of take their minds off of the situations that they're in because it can be very traumatic for children and, and displacement and, and being in a, in a new surroundings and strange, strange facility. So let's, let's give them a fun time. So that's what we did. And we've been doing it now, gosh, more than now, but, um, where we take hundreds of kids across the country, um, we've done it in probably, I think 15, well, all to all 32, um, teams we've worked with at some point. But we've taken it across um, the country, and every time we have an athlete in a city, we will hold one of those. And sometimes multiple, sometimes more than one. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely an interesting time to um, uh, be able to give back and and meet children that, you know, you were once a part of in the sense of, you know, you were were in that situation. So you can kind of understand them a little bit more and, and sympathize with them. Sure. Um, I think that's a really sweet thing. Um, you and I have already spent a lot of time talking about our love of animals. Um, and you do a lot um, yes. on that front as well, which I don't know how you do all of this. <laughs> there's the there's way, but, time in the day. I'm um, a huge animal advocate. Um, and it really is, it just kind of comes when it happens. I mean, I, I, I watch out for things, but you know, things just land in my lap. From, you know, helping dogs being rescued from across the border to, you know, somebody dumping a poor horse in the middle of Los Angeles to die and me and Jerry Allen put out a reward. Yeah, I mean, just some Aww. horrific situations, though. Put out a reward to capture the people who did it to somebody torturing two dogs down in San Diego and, again, us, um, donating money for the dog's recovery. I do a lot of financial donations. Um, just because I feel like that's only the way, the only way I can help sometimes is by getting an animal to recover um, and then putting up a reward to find the people that did it. So, um, or just, you know, placing, placing dogs. I do a lot of placement with dogs that have been abandoned or abused or neglected um, into new homes, foster care homes or, or permanent homes. Um, but I'm a huge, huge animal activist. Um, I, I love um, helping the less, the ones that have no voices. You know, when it comes to animals and, and they yeah. need someone to stand up for them and help them and, and make sure that, you know, I mean, the abuse and stuff that happens it just can be so horrific at times. But if there's a way and a, a, a way I could help, whether it's financially or physically or, or even just with my voice and, and being a voice for them, I, I'm down for it. Do you have a particular um, organization that you LA, but um, I do a lot of different help with um, different rescues. Um, there's a rescue in New York that I donate money to um, quite a bit. They um, most recently found um, some dogs that had been left and 
had been left in a, in a um, what do you call it, a, a, a downstairs. Um, thank you. Had left in a, in left uh, in a basement for weeks, basically, for a while. <laughs> Brought them all up in cages. They were just skin and bones, um, and they thought they were sleep. But it was a situation where we can build them back mm-hmm. to health. We can. We're going to help them not kill. But long story short, uh, you know they were able to do that, and I helped out financially. I felt really good about that. It helped, you know, get the dogs back to, to health and find good homes, and and then also help prosecute the people that had done the dogs as well. So. Um, yeah. It's really random for me when it comes to where I help. Um, I don't have just one organization to help. Um, I, I'll see something on Facebook or something at GoFundMe or something in the news. I, I saw something in the news at one point. Um, a horse was in the news. Um, and I just called up um, the Humane Society and asked what I could do. And we actually became really good friends with their, their public relations officer. And he helped me help with, with being able to get the word out. And I lent my PR assistants to them um, and then got Jared Allen involved in the campaign to, to try to find the perpetrators of, the, of what they did to the horse. And then, you know, again, the same thing with the dogs in San Diego, lending my funds, but also my voice and my ability yeah. to reach far and wide PR wise to help get the word out and it's kind of a, it's kind of a, you know, it's random, but it's, I always seem to find myself in something on a, on a monthly basis of one thing or another. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I used to volunteer at a shelter, um, up in Quincy, Massachusetts. And, um, we had a similar case like your, the New York one. We, they were doodles, Dober, Dober poodles. And, Oh my gosh. Um, they looked like little Aww. black lambs. Um, but there were a ton of them and they were, they didn't all get along and you could tell that they would fight at times. Um, and they came into the shelter, um, while they, while the guy was, um, going through trial and everything. And, um, we got to help restore them. And that was, I mean, one of my favorite dogs ever is this one that I just completely bonded with from that, um, from that pack. And, um, you know, I always loved working at that shelter hard down here because they have kill shelters. Um, but I hope with a a little rescue too. So, you know, yeah, (laughs) well, I mean, so it's so funny. Oh, and I have a new obsession with animals. Everybody listening to this is going to think I'm just bonkers. Um, really? Uh, goats. Yeah. And so I started following this Instagram account called Goats of Anarchy, which I suggest everybody do because it will just make you smile on like the worst day because th- these this woman uh, is a saint, I believe, and she basically takes in. Oh my goodness! She rescues goats, and so the majority of them have some sort of cognitive or neurological um, and 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 physical um, difficulties. So she's got a uh, a guy who like makes prosthetics for them, and she like creates these carts for them that are kind of like wheelchairs, but not. You know, with like, right. you know how you've seen the dog ones, 
They're similar to that. Um, and these little babies are just so sweet and cute. And there's a new trend called goat yoga where you, where you go to a farm to do yoga with the baby goats and they like jump on everyone. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> I, I swear you keep, as long as it's not slimy, I'm like, I just want to pet it. I want to be friends with it. Um, and you know, babies and animals, the noises that come out of my mouth when I see them, they're very interesting. Yeah. I, get so I, I love it. It's, it's one yeah. of the things that brings me the most joy is to, um, uh, you know, to help, help those that can't help themselves. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, a couple of questions about you and things that you do for yourself. So, uh, do you have a morning or evening routine? This is something I'm oddly obsessed with. I just love hearing about people's routines. I, I mean, my normal routine is pretty boring. Mine. Quite honestly, I wake up, I take my dog for a walk, or she takes me for a walk, rather, one of the two. Or sometimes I have to, like, literally pull her for a walk. <laughs> um, she's, yeah, she's she's a little Yorkie slash uh, Brussels mix, but she's got a mind of her own, that's for sure. So I get up, walk her, then I come back and I <laughs> go to the gym for an hour, um, make my breakfast, and then I'm off at, you know, get ready for work and I'm off and running and into the office. So it's nothing, unfortunately, too exciting, that's for sure. No, but th- I mean, those are, you know, the basics, but are interesting because people do things differently. Do you have a particular oh, yeah, time I wake that up you every tend to wake up six, every day? 6 a.m. Are you, do you have an, I try to go to bed by 10 30 usually or so uh, 10, I mean, 10 30 is usually my earmark for trying to get into bed. Um, but sometimes it doesn't work out that well. Yeah. <laughs> my focus and well, my, sure. my direction yeah. is at 10 30, but yeah, sometimes, you know, things happen and you're not in bed till 11, 11 30. <laughs> right. Um, and then, you know, you take care of so many other people and are there things that you do for yourself in yeah, a way of self-care? Times a month. Um, I'm a big spa girl. Um, and I, I really believe in that for multitude of reasons, but um, in Asia, they do it a lot. Um, and I, I understand why. And I think it's part of why um, the Asian culture lives so much longer is um is releasing all the toxins in your body and the stress and so i'm a big proponent in getting a massage at least mm-hmm. a couple times at least a couple times a month i'd love to get one every week but that becomes a little expensive but um yeah it does <laughs> but you know at least a couple times a month to yes. relax and steam and get a great i do deep tissue um as far as i'm concerned i like it to hurt a little bit because it means that it's releasing all of the the knots and the toxins and stuff that you built up with my job, it becomes a high stress job a lot of the time. So um, releasing all that is a good way to help me stay healthy and and um, and feel better. So that's definitely something I do for myself. Do you um, absolutely do you carry it all on your shoulders and neck? <laughs> yeah, all on my I shoulders and my neck. That's all where the stress goes. High tension places. <laughs> yeah, I had a um, I had a gentleman who. He actually works on athletes too. And he, 
He did an assessment. He's like, yeah, you're the I, I don't know. I might give you a run for your money, though, Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I feel like this no, isn't a no, contest. No, we don't want to win. We definitely don't want to win. <laughs> <laughs> let's just let's just go to a spa, exactly, <laughs> and enjoy it. <laughs> Um, well, I'm going to finish up our recording now and I wanted to thank you. Um, you know, I've loved chatting with you. It, where are the places that people can follow you or EAG or any yeah, of I mean, you can go to our website at eagsportsmanagement.com. My, um, IG is, um, at Denise White underscore EAG, as well as my Twitter and um yeah and then we have our our instagram for eag sports as well as twitter so um it's if you want to follow what our guys are doing and um or what i'm doing i'm I'm not that exciting but my guys are certainly much more exciting than i am until the movie comes out then i'll be exciting but uh thanks i appreciate you're exciting anyway yeah we'd love to um you know uh have you guys follow along and see what our athletes are doing on a day-to-day basis and they stay committed pretty busy for sure. I want to thank Denise for taking the time to speak with me. I had such a great time talking with her and this is really one of the episodes that I truly loved because we talked about so many different things, but so many important things. Um, I'm truly grateful to her for being uh, a part of this. I have a couple of other thank yous that I have neglected to say over the last couple of episodes, but are, are again, really important to me. The first is for my podcast network. I am part of radioinfluence.com. Jerry P. Tuck and Jason Floyd are the guys behind it, and they have been holding my hand this entire time when it comes to the audio editing, the getting it into iTunes. I don't even know how you do that. Um, all of that. And, and they've been phenomenal. So please check them out at radioinfluence.com. In addition, I need to thank Rachel Reese for my amazing logo. And I'm the worst for forgetting to thank you. So please forgive me. Um, Rachel is the CEO and creative director of Angel Works. That's W-E-R-X Productions and the Department of Understanding Humans podcast. And they use the acronym DUH for that D-U-H. So check out DUH website, D-U-H website.com for her podcast and contact info. She's a great designer and, um, and I'm obviously going to use her later on as I, as I get a little bit bigger in my britches. Finally, thank you to all of you who have been listening, who have subscribed and rated. Um, please continue to share these episodes and um, rate and review the podcast if you can, because that allows, I don't know, us to be found in the algorithms, I guess. Again, technical stuff I don't understand, but the more people rate and review, the more likely it is that random people will stumble upon my little podcast and maybe be, you know, change their world for the better. You can subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, um, TuneIn Radio, and RadioInfluence.com. The social media accounts for the podcast are all at LTPF Pod. Uh, that's on Facebook, on Instagram, and on the Twitterverse. 
And you can always check out for more show notes and additional information, our website, which is ltpfpod.com. And my personal Twitter account is at Bobby Sue, B-O-B-B-I-S-U-E. Before I let you go, I really do look forward to your feedback on this podcast. Tell me how I can get better or who you want to hear from or I don't know, whatever. You can reach out to me either through any of those social media accounts or via email. And that's ltpfpod at gmail.com. I'm very excited for next week. We have Terry Jackson with the WNBPA and it's definitely a fun conversation. I hope you all enjoy your long weekend and we will see you soon. Bye.